You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. It's now early September, and so we stand approximately 60 days before the 2018 midterm elections. We want to focus in this episode on voting, on our electoral system in the wake of problems exposed in the 2016 elections, and on obstacles that have been constructed limiting participation in our democratic process. We will be joined by two guests today to discuss these issues. In a little bit, we'll talk with Ami Gandhi, Director of Voting Rights and Civic Empowerment at the Chicago Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights Under Law. But first, we're joined by Congressman Mike Quigley. Congressman Quigley represents Illinois' 5th Congressional District, largely based here in the city of Chicago. He serves as a member of the Appropriations Committee in the House and since 2015 has served on the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Welcome to Talking Liberties, Congressman Quigley. Glad to be here. Thanks for the work you do. You know, we were talking off the air, so I just have to start by asking, could you have imagined in your days back on the Cook County Board and when you first went to Congress, could you imagine that this is where you would be now in terms of working on these kinds of issues in Congress? Oh, I always knew I'd be chasing rubles in (laughs) Cyprus. Uh, I go back further to my early days and no lights in Wrigley Field and working for Chicago Alderman on services. Uh, I was going to the University of Chicago's public policy school, now the Harris School, and um, I just knew that someday I would be a Chicago Alderman, (laughs) which is a noble uh, profession and something to aspire to. But if someone had told me that uh, I would be investigating whether or not the Russians attacked our democratic process and whether or not the president of the United States conceivably could have conspired in that attack, I would have said there's just no way. And sometimes I still wonder how we got to this position. Yeah. So let me let me just sort of begin with a basic question. I think in some ways uh, we're coming up on the 2018 election. There's still a lot of fixation on the 2016 election, uh, and and it is because of this question. So, in a straightforward way, was our election meddled with? Was it hacked in 2016? A hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, the Russians attacked our democratic process. Almost two years ago, Director Comey told me, told the public, uh, the Russians did this. They did it to help one candidate, Mr. Trump, and to hurt another, Mrs. Clinton. In 2017, in January, a very rare occurrence, the intelligence community said with a high degree of certainty, in total uniformity, all 17 agencies, it was the Russians, they attacked the process, and they did it to help one candidate over another one. That's, that is unusual. And nothing has happened since then. Yeah. To can move us to another conclusion or to make us think otherwise. Anything, it has enhanced that belief and enforced the fact that they never left. So what are, in your mind, what are some of the elements of that campaign and the way in which they carried it out? There's a lot of great readings under the heading, the Kremlin Playbook. How do the Russians attack, and this is the the broader way of looking at it, liberal democratic institutions in the West? Mm -hmm. They attack NATO. They attack the United Nations. And they were doing it in the same time that candidate Trump was doing basically the same thing. 
how do they attack the liberal democratic institution of free elections? I think their original plan and what they've done before was to attack its integrity. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they ever imagined in their wildest dreams that they could have succeeded so well. What they did in the United States is they weaponized social media. We get into more details later. They hacked and dumped into computer systems and emails, as we're well aware of now. And they attacked our election infrastructure. Oddly enough, ironically enough, one of the first states, if not the first, was Illinois' State Board of Elections. Right. um, Which was almost exactly to this date two years ago. Somewhere over 40 states were attacked uh, where they got into that database. Dangerous enough because obviously what they could do, uh, when they have the information you give when you register to vote, name, address, social security number, that's dangerous enough as it is. But they can also say delete filings. They can say this person's already voted or a voted absentee or asked for an application or they can delete registrations. That's scary enough, but we also know they got right up to our voting machines. And that's the big, is that the big fear, that they would get actually into those machines and be able to manipulate the electoral process? I think it's a vital part of it. I don't want to underestimate the fact that when they weaponize social media, mm-hmm. they help polarize the country. I think there's an argument to be made that, well, we were ripe for that. Right. I think you can, it's fair to ask, and it's a critical question for the country to ask itself, why was it so easy for the Russians to sow discord? Because we, we're willing to accept the worst in each other. Right. That's something we're going to have to meet head on. Uh, I think it's still valuable and important when they hack and dump. Obviously, it's a felony to hack into computers, but if they could hack into every candidate's computer system, get those emails, they can create a lot of problems. But obviously, getting into those um, individual voting machines, they can affect outcomes, and uh, it's a scary proposition. So in your mind, are we doing enough ahead of the 2018 elections to protect those systems, to ensure that we're keeping them out, or them or anybody else, frankly, out of our electoral process in that way? That's a good point because— it doesn't have to be the Russians. Right. I think what the Russians did is remind everybody that our systems are susceptible. Yeah. I think there's a couple problems. First, the president of the United States, when he calls this a hoax and a witch hunt, it tells a lot of people this isn't a problem. So when I talk to our election experts at the federal level who have offered assistance to states, sometimes they get a pushback because they're thinking, Well, the president says this isn't fake. Why should we worry? The mixed message coming from the president as opposed to the experts leaves people to believe that there isn't a reason to really pay attention to this. That's a problem. And I think it's told his Republican counterparts in the the House and the Senate, you don't have to vote for election and security equipment. Then we have to ask ourselves, when was the last time that the integrity of our election systems were questioned? Bush Gore? Gore, 2000, right? The punch right. card. The punch cards. Oh, and who wants to be reminded of hanging chads? Yeah, yes, yes. But what did we do in response? Basically, the federal government bought everyone brand new election right. equipment. Right, and we, we changed the way the voting system worked all across the country as the result of that. The integrity of the process mattered so much that we didn't want the Supreme Court, in effect, to decide an election again. Right. We spent 
$3.5 billion. In a bipartisan way, we should say. I, and, and it's not so long ago, but that was in a bipartisan way that people believed that the system was so important that we ought to do that. With enthusiasm. Right, right. Contrast this to what happened recently. I proposed a legislation, an amendment on the appropriations bill, and it, it succeeded in 2018 for the 2018 uh, calendar year. We got $380 million. Simply put, the decimal point was in the wrong spot, but it's all I could get. Right. What that money is targeted for, and the, every state applied for it, mm-hmm. and we maxed out. That money was targeted for training, advice, software, and new equipment. But we probably need at least $1.8 billion, the experts tell me, but more like $3.8 billion to do this job right. Our efforts to redo that again in 2019 failed on partisan lines yeah. in the House and the Senate, my right. efforts. So I've got one more shot, I'd like to think, in conference to convince my Republican friends you really ought to get past this, mm-hmm. devote at least another $380 million. Because, again, the states that, that applied for this, most of them maxed out. There's only, I think, Illinois got $12 million. million or, right, or something along that line. And our bipartisan boards of election in Illinois said, we need more like $120 20, million. Right, right. So we're not ready uh, at all in that extent. And we also have to remember that this equipment is... The reason it is a problem when it's old is it doesn't meet the challenge. How many people listening to this have a computer that's 12 to 14 years old? No one does. And if they did, they'd understand that it can't even handle modern cyber hacking software. Right. So you couldn't, it wouldn't be uh, used, even if we gave them the best software, it wouldn't help in the attacks that we're going to be facing. Um. As the election nears, I wonder what you think that people ought to be doing. What action should they be taking? You know, what what can the average listener here do to help protect our systems? What, what in your mind, is the best thing they could do? Well, first, I would talk to anybody who's a candidate for any office needs to be aware that they are a target. Mm-hmm. State reps, state senators, aldermen, people running for Congress, uh, judicial candidates. I think that there are those who don't appreciate that there's almost unlimited resources attacking this process. The next email that comes in to a low-level staffer could be the one that's... Spear phishing. Yeah. And they're very patient. They recognize that, as we saw in Illinois, a state senator can grow up pretty quick to be the president of the United States. Yes. So be cognizant of that. And also... If your member is not engaged, if your member of Congress or your senator is not engaged in a strong manner to fund anti-attack election protections, that they ought to be. So encourage your lawmaker to engage in this process. As uh, Director Comey said, the Russians attacked us uh, and they'll be back. I would add, they never left. Left. Um, let Let me switch for just a moment and ask you, um, are there domestic challenges that you're concerned about in terms of our elections, uh, about voter suppression? You you talked earlier about the weaponizing of social media. You know, that may be one. But are, are there things on the domestic front, not someone coming into the system, that concern you? Um, it concerns me that under the, for example, under the guise of 
we want clean elections. We're going to, you know, make sure our elections are clean. Some of my Republican colleagues have done nothing but suppress the ability for people to vote. Um, the number of legitimate voter fraud issues in this country is de minimis. And don't get me wrong. Someone commits election fraud, go after them. We should do everything we can to avoid election fraud. It's often funny when people say, oh, there's the, the guy from Chicago working on ele clean elections. Well, yeah, because we learned a long time ago this matters. But these folks, uh, they've taken it in terms of uh, suppressing election to a very depressing state. The examples of, about voter IDs making it very difficult. Uh, not allowing a small example of uh, college IDs to be used. Well, it's pretty obvious to see who they're trying to suppress there. I guess they're assuming they're not going to get a lot of uh, support from that. So uh, there's an Automatic Voter Registration Act, which is H.R. 2840. That would require states to ensure everyone who's eligible to vote and provides that information to DMV is automatically registered to vote. That's a really good start. There's the Voting Rights Advancement Act, uh, 2978. That restores important voting rights protections that the Supreme Court struck down by updating the Voting Rights Act formula and requiring states uh, with a recent history of voter discrimination to gain clearance from the Department of Justice before making voting law changes. It, it restores the definition for Section 5 under the Voting Rights Act in that way. Right. So uh, in July, uh, I led a letter to Governor Rauner on his opposition to legislation removing Illinois from the interstate voter registration cross-check system. Mm -hmm. uh, a recent study conducted by researchers at Stanford, Harvard, and the Univer uh, University of Penn and Microsoft determined that following the cross-check system's purge guideline can uh, result in a deletion of 300 legitimate voting registrations for every one instance of uh, double voting that may have been prevented. So I think what you're seeing is under the guise of running clean elections, you're seeing a massive effort at voter suppression. So, Congressman, what can people do leading up to the 2018 elections to help ensure that our elections work well? First, they should participate. I suspect I'm speaking to the choir, but as we said, so many people stayed home. Uh, it's not a spectator sport. Engage, involve. Uh, learn how to bring others into the process. Demand from your lawmakers that they respect the fact that the Russians attacked and could be back, and we need to protect against that. Uh, and also encourage them to fight against voter suppression. Three good things to start. I want to close, actually, sort of focusing on those 100 million people who didn't show up. Because I think one of the things, and one of the things we hear in terms of the ability to weaponize social media is, is, and you said it earlier, we think the worst about each other. But in some ways, we think the worst about government as well. You've been involved in government for a long time. You've been involved in efforts to reform government for a long time. And I guess I just wonder, are you more cynical now? Do you still think it's possible to make government work for people? Is that still a, something that's worth pursuing? I talk to college students all the time, and many of them are cynical. And I said, hey, I've been in Chicago politics 36 years. If I'm not cynical, you don't have a right to be. And even if you are, I believe that should give you greater impetus to go out and change things. We see how important the democratic process is now. So many of the norms that we care about are being challenged. Uh, and all the things, pick an issue. 
it's not a reason to stay home. It's a reason to engage. Education, equality in education, gun violence, climate change, a foreign policy that endangers everything we are about, the new order of the world, the new democratic order created after the Second World War is under attack by its primary architect. So sure, I'm asked if I watch House of Cards. I say, I live House of Cards. I can't go home and watch more darkness. I'm, I'm fixated on West Wing and, and Capra. Congressman, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. I hope that we can have you come back sometime in the future, and maybe we can talk about what happens in the 2018 elections and what we do moving forward. Glad to be here. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a little better news. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to talk now about some practical issues related to voting with our next guest, Ami Gandhi. Ami is the Director of Voting Rights and Civil Empowerment at the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. A graduate of the George Washington University Law School, Ms. Gandhi has a distinguished background working on civil rights and civil liberties issue, and I'm proud to say that she currently serves as a member of the ACLU of Illinois Board of Directors. Ami? Welcome to Talking Liberties. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start just by uh, looking at some data. What is the percentage of the eligible population that is currently registered to vote? About 80% of eligible voters are actually registered to vote. In Illinois and across the country, the numbers are pretty similar. There have been chronic barriers to people getting registered, even when they're technically eligible. But there are about 80% of people who are, in fact, registered. So then in Illinois, when we look back to 2016, what percentage of registered voters actually cast ballots in that 2016 election? We've all heard about the numbers of poor turnout across the country And in Illinois, we think that the number was a bit higher than the national average with about 63% of registered voters casting ballots. That still leaves a whole lot of people who could have voted but didn't. But the numbers show that about half, 50-60% of voters who are registered actually go ahead and cast their ballots, uh, at least as of the time of the last presidential election. Election. Okay. And then— One of the phrases we often hear, uh, fall-off voters. So voters who vote in a presidential year and then don't vote in a midterm election. So again, in a state like Illinois, what does that number look like? How many people vote in a midterm election? You're right. It does drop off quite a bit. Not everyone even knows there is an election this year. And the turnout, the typical turnout in an off year like this would be closer to about 40 percent. So less than half of registered voters might turn out during a midterm election. Maybe with the hype that we've heard about surrounding this upcoming November election, hopefully the number would be higher, but it might be as low as 40 or even lower. So from 63 in the 2016 presidential election down to maybe as low as 40 in a midterm election. Exactly. That's a big group of people who don't vote. Definitely. All right, I'm going to go one step further then. What does that look like for a municipal election, whether we're looking at the city of Chicago or in when they have the consolidated municipal elections across the state of Illinois? Do we know what that looks like? If we look at Chicago, it really tends to depend on the year and the election and what's going on at the time. 
and how it's affecting the voters. So during the historic 1983 election of Mayor Harold Washington, for example, turnout was at nearly 80%. It was actually that experience that really invigorated a lot of the local election administration, and we just saw what could happen if voters exercised their potential and participated fully, or at least a lot more so in municipal elections. In other municipal election years, the percent could be as low as 20 or 30 percent. And in Chicago's next municipal election, it might be very different. However, the next municipal election will take place in February of 2019 as Mayor Rahm Emanuel just announced that he will not run for re-election. And because of other circumstances in the city of Chicago, the turnout could be a lot higher than we usually see. Even before that announcement about our mayor, Young people of color have been saying for a long time that they look at the February 2019 election as even more important than the presidential election. election. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned when we talked about just the number of people registered about obstacles to being able to be registered to vote. And I wonder what some of those obstacles are and, and again, generally and then, then specifically what you see as problems in Illinois. There are a whole lot of people in Illinois who are eligible to vote but not yet registered or not sure where and when and how to exercise their right to vote. There are also people facing experiences like unfair and improper requests for identification at the polls, language access to the polls, disability barriers, racial intimidation and harassment. We have a nonpartisan voter protection hotline, 866-R-VOTE, and we also do in-person poll watching. And we talked to a voter in the 2016 election who was trying to cast her ballot in her hometown. It's about 40 miles south of Chicago. And the poll workers there refused to give her a ballot unless she showed her driver's license, unless she showed her photo ID. She knew enough about the law in Illinois that she thought something didn't sound right. She recognized that this seemed like it was voter suppression or otherwise an improper request for ID. She pushed back and pushed back, and the poll workers wouldn't let her vote. She got our assistance, and through our help, she was finally able to vote towards the end of the day. But she was concerned about the many other African-American senior voters in her polling place who were getting the same types of improper requests and might have just turned around and not tried to vote altogether. So issues like that, instances like that, happen in every single election, unfortunately. We receive hundreds of calls for every election, whether it's a high-profile election or a local or municipal election. You know, one of the things that you talked about, what we talked about at the beginning in that data was the fall-off from a presidential to a midterm, midterm to a municipal election. And I wonder what you think are good resources for people to look at so that if they're going to go out and vote, if they're concerned, say, about a race at the top of the ticket, that they get information about candidates who are down ballot. Are, are there things that you all recommend for people to look at to find that information? A couple good resources we would recommend are Ballot Ready and also Vote 411. Both of those websites have a lot of helpful information about a variety of candidates in any given election. I've been checking out ACLU Voter, and that also has some helpful information, especially about all of the down-ballot races that we may not hear about as much in the news. 
And I really recommend for people to get information from as many different resources as possible. Voteforjudges.org is another website that I like. And through getting information from different resources, it really can help us to make the most informed choice as possible. Do I have a right to take in, like, you know, the list of recommended judges? Can I take that list in with me? Yes, we can take that in with us, whether it's in paper or on a phone. We can certainly look at that as a resource. It's hard to remember every single thing on the ballot. It certainly is for me, and I know other voters feel that way too. It's completely fine to take a voter guide in with us. We do have to keep it to ourselves so that we're not perceived as trying to influence someone else's vote, but we can take that with us. And these days, uh, we hear about people exclaiming that they voted on social media, taking selfies, (laughs) sharing the good news with people. That's all great. I would suggest for people to not include any kind of picture of the ballot itself. That's an unsettled legal question about to what extent selfies are allowed relating to voting in the polling place. So it's just safer to take a picture of yourself outside the polling place after you voted, shout it from the rooftops, tell all of your friends to vote too, and just avoid getting into any trouble uh, and don't take a picture of the ballot itself. Itself. Um Illinois has actually done a pretty good job in terms of expanding access to the ballot, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those. We have done a lot in Illinois to expand access to the ballot with activists, election administrators, and government officials working together to expand access to the polls. We have online voter registration. We have election day registration. We have a large early voting period. And we have automatic voter registration that was signed into law last year. Now, we should also be real about the fact that automatic voter registration has barely been implemented. We have grave concerns about the delay of implementation. The steps that have been taken so far mean that registration is not really automatic yet, despite the promise of of the term. And automatic voter registration had great bipartisan support when the Illinois legislature was considering it, and it was signed by our Republican governor, Bruce Rauner, but it hasn't been implemented yet. And so we all, as voters who care about the system working as well as it should, should keep pressure on our state government to actually implement the promise of AVR. So if I'm a concerned citizen, if I think about those numbers that you talk about in terms of the fall off from a presidential year, I really want to make sure that everybody that I know gets out and votes. What's the best way to do that? What's the What are the best practices for, you know, really helping to get people to the polls? One of the best things that we can all do for ourselves as well as our friends and family members in our network is to have a voting prep plan to take simple steps to check, are you registered to vote at your current address? Do you know when and where you will vote? Do you know what you'll need at the polls if you need to take anything with you? And do you have any questions or concerns about any of the details? Now, for anyone who does have questions, they can call us on our hotline at 866-OUR-VOTE. There are also companion lines for Spanish speakers or speakers of other languages. But having a plan like that at the outset really helps to make sure that as many people vote as possible. We can completely understand that with Election Day being on a Tuesday for some people because of work responsibilities or childcare or other commitments, it's not the most feasible to vote in person on that day. So we're lucky in Illinois and many other areas to have other options for how 
we can exercise our right to vote if we are able to get that plan into place ahead of time. There are even programs that help drive people to the polls if someone needs assistance with transportation. There are many different options available for voters with disabilities. People who are eligible to vote but have a disability still are legally required to get assistance with voting. People who have limited English proficiency but who are citizens and eligible to vote still have the legal right to get language assistance. So those programs are out there to help voters. And so I really encourage people to take advantage of it as much as possible. Now, we should keep in mind that when we hear those numbers, it might sound to some people like, okay, well, some of the numbers still sound decent. Some people are still able to get to the polls. But we should keep in mind the inequities that are at play. People of color and low-income community members, their rates of participation and access are even lower. Mm -hmm. That's why automatic voter registration and other programs are so important to bring all of us into the fold who are interested in voting. You talked a little bit earlier about the ACLU voter program, which really is seeking to get every ACLU member across the country to vote in the 2018 midterms. What do you think about programs like that that kind of target based on an organization getting people out to vote, having them vote their values for their membership in a group like the ACLU? The more the merrier. The more organizations who can inspire our members and our contacts to vote, the better, especially if we're doing so in healthy, legally permissible ways. Let's go for it. Let's encourage everyone we know who's eligible to vote. One thing I really like about the ACLU voter resource is the what do they do part that Mm -hmm. explains what the offices are that we see on the ballot that we might not intuitively know about. So what besides a member of federal Congress might be on the ballot that we should consider voting for, like a state attorney general or the Cook County Sheriff, other positions like that. I do voting rights work with a think tank in Stateville Prison. And one of the frequent questions and ideas that we hear from incarcerated members and even returning citizens who are eligible to get back on the rolls is, you know, what is a comptroller? What What is a state attorney general? What exactly are they allowed to do and responsible for? There are many people in our community who want to get more involved in voting and exercise their right to vote, but they are not sure how to go about doing that in our somewhat intimidating election process. And with all of the offices to vote for, to be able to think a little bit about how each one impacts us individually is a good thing. Absolutely. Um, You've mentioned it before, but tell people again, what should they do if they get to the election day and they have a problem in terms of voting or if their voting is challenged and they need help? What should they do? We want to help you. No question is too small. Call us at 866-OUR-VOTE, 866-O-U-R-V-O-T-E, and that number works all across the country. We pick up the Illinois calls here in Chicago, and we can help not only over the phone, but we can send one of our legal volunteers to assist people at the polling place in person on Election Day, and that number works year-round. So if people are making their voting prep plan and want to call us ahead of time with questions, that's great. On Election Day, we're happy to talk with people as well. Ami, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this, and thank you for joining us here on Talking Liberties. Thank you for your work. That's our episode for today. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. As we've mentioned in this episode, the ACLU is out to ensure that everyone vote like their rights depend upon it in the 2018 midterm elections. You need to vote to end mass incarceration. You need to vote for a sane immigration policy. You need to vote to protect access to abortion care 
and you need to vote to protect free speech. So in order to do that, you need to do some work between now and election day. You need to make sure that you're registered, even if you already have registered. You need to make a plan to go and vote, and you need to encourage others to vote. If you need more information on any of these items, you can go to aclu.org voter to learn more about the ACLU voter program. You can go to aclu-il.org voting in order to get more information about voting rights in Illinois. And if you have any issues, you can call 866-R-VOTE, 866-O-U-R-V-O-T-E. I'd like to thank our guests for this episode, Congressman Mike Quigley and Ami Gandhi. Talking Liberties was produced by Max Bever, executive producer Chris Olson, mixed by Sean Sparbori and Philip Von Duren. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can listen to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Google Play. Make sure to subscribe and please rate us and leave comments because we'd actually like to hear from you. You can visit our website anytime at aclu-il.org and you can contact us directly at talkingliberties at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.